Today we're going to be talking about Spider-Man Across the Universe, uh, which Across is... the Spider-Verse. Across Today... the Universe is the Beatles movie. <laughs> it's a mashup. They go into more multiverses than you even know, Keith. You're you're not wrong there. <laughs> I bet somewhere in Marvel history there has been a Beatles and Spider-Man crossover. Yeah. Why not? Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of Keith Foster, you are in San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And it looks like we have a guest with us today. There in the background, you have a new background. There's somebody, some <laughs> one fur of the baby. five cats that is uh, that is Blueberry with us in studio. Um, they're actually, I think, all in the in cat this tree. Room. They're just you can't see them. Uh, we're redoing our our my office right now, so I had to record out in the the living room. Um, so yeah, we might have occasional critters pop in the frame. <laughs> All right. What what about your significant other? Is she doing something in another room or? She is. Uh, she's actually currently painting. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I taped off a bunch of baseboards uh, before she got home from work, and now she's uh, hopefully finishing up the last of the painting. So uh, <laughs> a after tonight, we are gonna start putting everything back together. You meant wall painting? I thought you. I was picturing her in front of an easel, like you know, doing happy little <laughs> trees and clouds and stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, wall. Uh, we redid the floors and then everything was out of both my office and our bedroom while all of the furniture was out we've wanted to repaint those rooms pretty much since we've moved in um and it's turned into an ongoing two-week project from hell uh we'll be talking about spider-man across the spider-verse uh which is still in theaters um opened in june 2nd of last week uh, number one in theaters right now. I suspect it's probably going to stay there for a while. Uh, and at the end of the episode for the streaming homework, we're going to be talking about the 1981 fantasy film Dragon Slayer, which you assigned us. Yes. Uh, which was currently playing on Pluto TV, if you have access to that. Uh, and is also much easier to watch on Canopy if yeah. you are a Canopy subscriber through your library. Yeah, and if, if your library uh, has access to it. We lost a few people since the last episode. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, the Iron Sheik, the wrestler, mm -hmm. the Iron Sheik, passed away. Uh, we lost Tina Turner. Yeah. Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. Two men enter, one man leaves. Which I, I mean, that's such a George Miller thing that she was like a lead character in that movie. She's um, great. She's great in it, though. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, the experimental 
LBGT art film director Kenneth Anger, who oh, I didn't hear honestly about that one. did not know he was still alive. Uh, he was well into his 90s. He died, uh, I think, the same day as Tina Turner, actually. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, you can watch most of his shorts on YouTube. I was looking him up earlier in the week. Uh, he's probably most well-known for his Scorpio Rising trilogy. They're like half-hour films. There's Scorpio Rising, Lucifer Rising, and something else. This name and sounds familiar. Probably because... Whether you know it or not, even though he didn't really make narrative features, like his stuff was more experimental, it was more sort of focused on iconography and art, a lot of his style ended up adopted into filmmakers from the 70s on, including Martin Scorsese, Hmm. uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, Greg Araki used his imagery quite liberally um and all the way up to and including uh nicholas winding ruffin who actually included the scorpion jacket in drive because of the main character from scorpio rising who's working on his motorcycle the whole half hour short but he the way that he included pop music in his films the way that he like you know, hyper-masculinized these sort of male pinups and intercut sort of homoerotic imagery with the motorcycle or whatever kind of pop culture iconography that was big at the time Hmm. um, would end up influencing basically anybody who was making stylish movies where the characters live in a world where pop culture exists. Hmm. Interesting. Just wanted to bring that up before we really get into stuff. Oh, uh, also, um, you left one out. R.I.P. to Ray Stevenson. Um, uh, oh, character yes. Character actor. Uh, known, I think a lot of people knew him best for Rome. Um, he was in, he played the Punisher in Punisher Warzone. Uh, he was, he was in, also uh, in, in the MCU. Yeah um as uh one of the warriors three in the thor movies i mean he he was in a ton of stuff and he was a great character actor he was only in the 60s too it's really sad yeah was am i tripping or was he in rrr no you're not tripping he was the uh he was the main villain in rrr yeah that's what i thought yeah, <laughs> yeah the english uh military noble person uh he just finished filming for ahsoka the new star wars show for disney plus like i mean a great character actor did a did a ton of stuff so it's super sad okay uh let's go ahead and start talking about spider-man across the spider-verse yeah uh do you want me to set this up that's okay i i'll start here with uh the imdb description we can go into more detail (laughs) if if need be uh, but it says here, Miles Morales uh, catapults across the multiverse where he encounters a team of spider people ch- uh, charged with protecting its very existence. When the heroes clash on how to handle a new threat, Miles must redefine what it means to be a hero. 
Man, uh, that's so big. I know. Uh, I, also, you can tell that I, copywriter also didn't really know how to how to sum I, it up. I also feel like uh, that's that summation is it's underselling Spider Gwen, who I, I would say is just as much a lead, if not uh, maybe even a little bit more so. Like you, right. you have these sort of dual protagonists with Spider Gwen and Miles Morales in this movie, whereas. The first movie focuses pretty heavy on Miles. It's, you know, it's his origin story. It's him meeting these other spider people and having them influence them. Uh, but both Miles and Gwen have, you know, full character arcs in this movie. And, and the movie starts out with Gwen, I think. It, it does. So actually, uh, the, that's how I was going to open this up, is that, uh, the you know, the first chunk of the film opens in her universe where uh, her father is the captain of pol police and she's trying to hide her identity. And um, in that version of Earth, uh, her best friend was Peter Parker, who dies instead of the normal Earth version where we know that uh, Gwen is uh, Spider-Man's first love who dies. So uh, there's these these little bits of tropes or whatever that kind of get swapped out in her universe. And she's come to this point in which she can't really reconcile her life as Spider-Gwen with her father's revenge fantasy of finding and destroying Spider-Woman, uh, otherwise known as Spider-Gwen. Yeah, because uh, her, her father blames spider woman for the death of peter parker having you know right. not knowing that it's his daughter exactly and she can't exactly tell him so she sees an opportunity to kind of get out of dodge and join this army of of, of spider folk uh who are hopping along the multiverse um sort of tying up loose ends and fixing glitches where they appear uh, and sort of a cleanup crew across the multiverse to make sure that every version of the canon is operating as it's supposed to without interruption. Mm -hmm. um, back on Miles Morales's reality, yeah, he's still sort of pining after the one that got away in Spider-Gwen during their encounters from the first film. Well, that that and I also think there's just this idea that, you know, Spider-Man as a uh, as a role is is very lonely. You know, there's not a lot of people yeah. you can relate to. And in the first movie, his origin story is being exposed to these other spider people. Um, Spider-Gwen, obviously, who who, you know, he has a strong attachment towards. Um, but also Peter Parker um, and, you know, the, the various characters he meets throughout. Um, he, you get the sense that now that he is sort of settled into the role, um, you know, there's this loneliness that comes with not being able to to share any of that with anyone. Right. With the exception of his roommate in college uh, or soon to be roommate in college. He's applying to get into bigger schools and he's feeling a lot of pressure from his parents, Spider-Man 101 mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And uh, 
in comes the spot, a sort of C-list Spider-Man villain here, voiced by Jason Schwartzman, who is stumbling across his his powers where he's able to create portals, very much like the video game portal, if you can imagine. And uh, he wants to do sort of low-level crime to get Spider-Man's attention because he feels as though he is Spider-Man's ultimate nemesis, even though Spider-Man can't really be bothered to care about his existence. And uh, eventually this leads into some sort of accident where the spot gains control of the multiverse and putting everything he knows into jeopardy as well as being this sort of universe destroyer. Um, which then brings Spider-Gwen and the rest of that team that's being helmed by Spider-Man 2099, puts their paths back together. Yeah. So that's that's the nuts and the bolts of it, but that's really <laughs> kind of underselling it. Uh, it sounds like a lot, and it is. Um, and there's even more. Uh and, you know, I want to kind of tiptoe around some things because there is a yeah. lot of surprises here. There's a lot of reveals. You know, whatever we thought we knew about Spider-Man, Miles Morales, the Spider-Verse, you know, and these relationships is yeah, they, they, just skimming they, the surface of where this movie starts. Yeah, they they really take the concept of the first movie of, like, you know, there's all these spider people and just kind of amplify it and uh, and is like, OK, well, what if if this is true, then what else is true? And they just kind of take that concept and run with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it it's it is the definition of sort of the the sequel thing where you mm -hmm. It's not only that the story is going deeper into the concepts, but everything that was sort of inventive and unique and interesting and different about uh, the first Spider-Verse film. What was the full title of that one? Uh, into the Spider-Verse. Into the, into the Spider-Verse, which... Was one of the last films I think I saw when I lived in California because it's been a while since that movie has been out, and you can tell like you know that movie was really pushing the boundaries of animation. This movie, <laughs> I almost dare to call this an art film in its in its use of animation and style and technique and visual exploration the way that it propels a story through visual yeah it tells story not just through character not just through action but through animation through devices right like you and and the first one did this as well i mean it, it did you know the, the the first one went there but this one i think just again just goes more and more and more with it right so you have these right. characters and they're they're animated in different styles and their universes look wholly different and creative and uh, have fun with like what that could mean. Yeah, but there's so, almost sort of a, a, a collage like nature to the way that they approach not even just yeah. not even just as signifiers of this is that world, this is that world. Like, there's that, 
But then there's also just like, I, I thought of a sequence in the film, um, one of the few like calmer, quieter sequences in the film where mm. Gwen is uh, confronting her father, where the background mm-hmm. changes around them. It's very yeah, expressive, that... almost in a way that like anime does, where in anime, you know, it doesn't always have to be what's literally in the background in focus mm-hmm. every frame. You can do a, uh, you know, a, a brighter color scheme or you can desaturate things or you can, uh, you know, flip the you know, where the camera would be in places that shouldn't exist. And yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. In this particular sequence, they use they use color almost like how you can use lighting in a movie but it's it's kind of even beyond that it has this sort of expressionistic quality almost the sort of a hand painted like watercolor bleed effect at times yeah and and that is just one sequence and in the whole movie is kind of operating on this express different things through different styles of animation or different uh, colors or sometimes not even animation at all. Um, right. You can put, they occasionally pull in live action. I mean, I was noticing everything from like sort of a 60s pop art style uh, to graffiti to, like I said, anime, um, mm-hmm. comic book framing and splitting and sp- splash pages and that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, like, like almost a, a hand-crafted uh, watercolor sort of effect. Uh, cell shade, um, 3D, like, and, and like every single scene. Renaissance can sort of, sketch work. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Or, or even something that kind of looks like a an an animatics, you know, yeah. like something you would create prior well, to like animating on top of it, just to the, express uh, sort of a a different tonal value. Yeah, and like these, the, these the, can uh, shift like every every couple seconds within well, the every scene. frame, almost. Yeah, like the 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 spot, for example, I think is a great example of that. His character's design is kind of stripped down to where mm-hmm. a, a lot of times you can see kind of the sketch lines mm-hmm. of of his framing, and and uh, I thought that was really cool thumbnail kind of look to it yeah yeah and, and um you know the ink spots the, his spots uh they almost look like spilled ink um right he, he almost looks like kind of a doodle that would just be discarded which again is just the storytelling through just character design alone is incredible and that's one element of a thousand that are operating every single frame of this movie since the last film to this film they've been able to because there was sort of a quality to the last film that was intentional but they were kind of leaning into it maybe because of the limitations of the style of animation they were doing where there was a kind of a herky-jerky quality to the the actual animation itself whereas this is able to do everything that that movie did and more. And now there's much more fluidity 
yeah. and and uh, kineticism to to the sequencing. Oh my god! Some of the action sequences in this movie are just mind blowing. Like literally, I could not process everything that I was seeing. Sometimes there there was sometimes, but the action is so clean uh in sense of character and and what's actually happening that there are moments that are strange because it's like okay i get that these characters are going here but there is so much information on the screen at one time that my brain can't absolutely cannot process it all at once yeah yeah i mean i I'm not going to try and pretend that every action sequence was uh totally intuitive. Like there's there's a there's sometimes where you know he's climbing up a building the then the camera flips upside down now the building looks like a tower that's floating in the space or something everything in the background sort of lights out and then there's things that are kind of flying by at a you know, so it's more about creating the sense of of motion than yeah. it is um, showing you know where we are in relationship to other things. And sometimes, occasionally, that can get a little tiring on the eyes it, just to take it in because it's so new. It's I don't think of- it was tiring on the eyes. I, I but I I get what you mean because I felt like my brain could not keep up with everything. Right. And there's a lot of sequences like that that you know throughout the film there's you know this movie is constantly moving. There's there's very few moments of, you know, characters in rooms talking. They they well, it's <laughs> almost like the goal was to to try and do as much while in motion as possible. Well, it, it's funny because a, a, a few few weeks ago we did an episode, uh, or we did a, a little segment about movies that are at eleven. You know that that are yeah. are they're just the money riff, and I feel like this movie is just the money riff the whole time. Kind of, yeah. I mean, especially from a visual standpoint. Uh, what did we think of it as a story? I think we've talked a lot about it as a visual experience. And I think, you know, as a visual experience, it's, that is what the movie is the most concerned with. And um, on that alone, I say it's worth the price of admission. See it and see it in a theater. Bigger yeah, the screen, I mean, the better. It is top notch uh, uh, as far as the technical aspect of it goes. Uh as the story aspect of it goes, I like it a lot as well. I um, I really like that it it frames all of this stuff, right? Because there's a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. Um, I like that it frames it all on this relationship between Miles and Gwen, and and this idea of of being lonely. Um, but knowing that there's somebody out there who can relate to what you're going through, but you can't get to them for whatever reason, can't communicate, and just that that feeling of isolation. And, and I think, again, framing it with these two characters is really the heart of the movie. 
is really what makes it work is, you know, we get this introduction to Gwyn and how being Spider-Woman has isolated her, but how she has always, you know, kind of wanted this community. Um, she's always wanted to be in a band. She's always wanted that collaboration. Um, and then we see, you know, Miles and his narrative is about, you know, being excluded. And even in a world of Spider-Man, even in a multiverse full of Spider-Man, to be the outsider of that, to be the one that's different, um, and to have these characters have this sort of friendship that connects them through all of that, um, and and possibly more. I, I think this movie doesn't work without that human element. If you don't feel anything for these characters, then it would just be colors and shapes, right? They do such a good job of making all of these spider people, even though they're all variations of Peter Parker's story, they all feel like different, unique characters. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of characters we'll recognize from the first movie, if you've seen it. We have the the Peter Parker that's voiced by Jake Johnson. Mm-hmm. He comes Peter, back in Peter this B. one. Peter B. Parker. Yeah, he comes back in this one, and um, they develop him in a fun way. We have some newer characters. We have uh, the uh, the Indian Spider-Man, uh, voiced by Karan Sony. Pavita Brabhakar. Yes. And then uh, we also have Spider-Punk, uh, who's voiced by Daniel Kalua, who's a lot of fun in this. Oh my gosh, so great. I, he Spider-Punk is one of those, he's kind of a scene stealer. Yeah, yeah. He's, and and then there's all these other new characters that kind of pop in too, including a Lego Spider-Man, which apparently I didn't know this till I was reading about it, but that sequence was animated by like this 14-year-old fan who... Yeah, holy shit, I just read about that as well. Yeah, because yeah. he did a Lego version of the trailer. So like he was able to somehow get his sequence. I mean, it's a short sequence, but able to get it animated in like three months or some shit. And he's 14. Like, Ooh. bro, that is impressive. Yeah. yeah. Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who co-wrote this with Dave Callahan, they are, you know, the ones who came up with the, the Lego movie. So, I mean, their influence, their fingerprints are all over this. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and it has a lot of They're the kings of the, making the impossible possible. And it has a lot of, you know, the kind of meta humor that they're known for. Um, uh, that they, they're able to kind of pull off in a way that doesn't shatter everything. Um, it, it, it right. never, it, it always feels like it's out of love. It never feels like this sort of cynical nod and wink, like, look at what we're doing kind of thing. Um, yeah, it never comes off like they're trying to be too out clever the audience or, yeah, it, or yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, directed by, uh, Jacqueline Dos Santos, Kemp Powers and Justin K. Thompson. 
So, I mean, big project, um, and you would it would have to be given the scale and scope of 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 the movie. Well, it's um, it's crazy to me that not crazy. It's it's it actually makes a lot of sense, and I think this is why people connected with the first one, right? Is it's this Spider-Man story has all the hallmarks of Spider-Man, you know, it has the personal connection. It has, it has the, you know, the, the sort of trouble balancing Spider-Man life with personal life. It has all of this sort of human element, but because it's animation, they can take these wild swings that you could never do in a live action movie. That and there's been a Spider-Verse live action movie, you know, where uh uh there's there's been a couple within the MCU now uh where they kind of try to do this interconnected thing, but because especially the first one, they didn't know it was going to be a, a a huge hit. Um so they were kind of able to take these risks with it that you would never greenlight for a traditional Spider-Man movie. Right. Well, the blessing and the curse of the success of the first Spider-Verse film is that it opened the possibilities up with what you can do in animation. Yeah. Um, And the type of Elseworld stories you can create. The curse is that Marvel learned all the wrong lessons from it. All the studios have learned all the wrong lessons from it. And now everything's a multiverse movie and not everything should be a multiverse movie. (laughs) You know, it would be like, it'd be like after back to the future Two, um, you know, Jurassic park is like, we're going to have dinosaurs going back into time. And then, you know what? Don't even even put that, into the universe don't put that into the multiverse uh what i mean to say is back to the future 2 is really cool and very ambitious but that type of storytelling needs to stay there and and not overextend itself and i feel like the concept of the multiverse outside of these films has well since overextended itself with the exception of everything everywhere all at once which i think has so far been the best to do it outside of these movies mm-hmm. you know uh doctor strange multiverse madness was kind of whatever it, it's when the movie becomes solely about that that w- we start to have story issues uh, not to get too far away from the subject at hand but i think just the idea of the multiverse as a concept, like traversing through parallel universes as a sci-fi concept is so specific and so niche sure. and maximalist that when you have five or more in like a three-year period, sure. it it just feels like you're watching the same thing over and over again. And, yeah, it, and which it feels I think like it... the idea is being cravenly abused i I mean i don't i don't disagree with you in that regard like if you know if we got five time travel movies in one year we that you know five big time travel movies it starts to feel a little 
wonky. I mean, things happen like that. You know, certain concepts pick up steam. It's because it is a, a it is very in vogue right now, and it is the problem with it is we're seeing both ends right where we're seeing movies like this which use it creatively and use it in a way to as a storytelling device and then you also get the cynical sort of cash grab version of it um to me i don't think it's any different than the robot apocalypse i i i think it's maybe something that is a little newer in the pop cultural zeitgeist you know like this sort of thing was what drove me to the dark tower series uh, for stephen king which he you know he wrote he started writing i don't know in the fucking 70s and didn't finish till the 2000s so like i don't think it's something that you should necessarily have to limit but i i do agree with you that like because it's very popular, it stands out, right? Like, you know, the, like the right. year when we got both Deep Impact and Armageddon in one year, it was like, okay, how many fucking movies are we going to get about asteroids hitting the Earth? Um, right. But, but that doesn't mean that either of those movies were bad because of that. Uh, they, you know, Deep no, Impact but that was bad is, that for other is this is all to say that I think this movie in particular positively embarrasses the copycats. Oh, yes, I agree. Be, but it's because it's because of all of these things we're talking about, right? Uh, it's yeah. a, it's a character focused story. It is uh, it is insanely creative in terms of its technical aspects. Uh, it is. It, yes i agree it has everything and more has you brought upon the idea of like this idea of the the two lonely characters you know really like zeroing in on that interpersonal emotional Mm -hmm. arc um i think there's also sort of a thematic thing here about destiny sure um oh yeah absolutely yeah uh it's not something that doesn't come up in spider-man comics all the time but uh, it's the first time it's ever been as explicated as clearly he, mm-hmm. in a movie as as it is here. But this, I, and and the way that this, I don't know. Tell me if I'm if I'm uh, overanalyzing it. But you know, every you know this idea of like everybody gets to be Spider Man except for you. I kind of felt like that was there. They were almost trying to say something about the fact that you know here's a universe with a black inner city character as the lead spider-man i and i mean here okay uh i i don't think you're totally wrong but you know we also see a a a black pregnant spider woman who who is actively accepted as the group but but i i absolutely think I mean, that's the Spider-Man thing, right? Like, in in the first movie, explicitly says, you know, anyone can wear the mask, and right, and I think that is something to why Spider-Man has always been, you know, has pop culturally not only been a lasting figure, but has become more and more popular as the years go by. Is that idea that anyone can 
can be this. And I don't think it is an accident that the Spider-Man that is being excluded is, you know, is an Afro-Latino inner city kid who's not Peter Parker. Right. That That's what I meant by that. There's also this moment where he's talking to his school counselor and they're they're trying to figure out what the narrative is that they're going to try and sell to Absolutely. Princeton to get yeah. him in. And we're, you know, to push certain things forward it, to, to it, play it, towards the heartstrings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and he's sort of uncomfortable by it. But they're like, I guess we'll go with this because we have to kind of thing. And I felt like that is almost, you know, blown up into this larger theme of uh, Miles Morales sort of defining himself around all of these characters that are essentially him, but there's something about him that innately excludes him. Yeah. And and I, I thought that was an interesting parallel. Like there's there's subtle parallels like that all throughout the movie, mm-hmm. and things are flying past you so fast it's easy to miss them. I I know I want to see this again, especially uh, later on home video when yeah, I can where I can like when pause. I can watch <laughs> well where I can put on my the subtitles and yeah and and, and watch with headphones and stuff because I I will say is uh, one of my few critiques of it is that the soundtrack is pretty uh, incessant throughout most of the movie and sometimes it's mixed really high into the into the scene where their dialogue and the soundtrack are almost at the same level this is and it. i have okay. a hard time kind of like parsing out everyone's face is covered so you're not you can't see lips you can't see expression so it's that and then you know they're usually web slinging while they're talking and well, and no, then there's is, like this you know, like trap music playing person, in the background. You're not the first person. Uh, I read some people on Twitter who their screening specifically um, seem to have some weird sound mixing issues. Uh, but like when I saw it, I, I never had an audio issue. Um, I remember at the beginning of the movie, it seemed a little quiet. But I, I don't know. I, I wonder if there's a... a I, I don't know if that was a screening thing or if it's just a, a movie thing. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't. It could be. I, I mean, to me, it it seemed like the movie was mixed that way on purpose. Like it was almost trying to do with audio what the what what the scene was doing visually. In hmm. everything's kind of at the same level, and everything's like you know constantly moving and changing and. Um, the only one I had, the only time I really had issues like that was with um, Spider Punk, but um, his accent yeah. was so thick that it, it yeah, I felt I felt like his character should have been subtitled, just because I I felt like I missed like sixty percent of what he said. Yeah, there were some sequences between Spider Man and Spot where I was like trying to tune my ear a little bit to like the com the actual conversation just to kind of keep up with it. Hmm. Um so there is there is a little bit of a challenge on a multimedia level on how involved this movie is as an audio visual presentation. Mm-hmm. But it's um so far the most impressive thing I've seen this year pretty easily and 
I mean, um, I just I, again I, without saying without saying too much, one of the best endings I've seen this year. Yeah. Okay. I, I I'm not gonna comment on specifics. My first thought was literally, how long do I have to wait for the next one? And I haven't felt that. I think since I, I, I again I've seen a lot of people kind of comparing this to the Matrix Reloaded, and I think that's a, a a pretty fair comparison. Like, yeah, I was just immediately like, oh, when does the next one fucking come out? Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I thought of that, um, and I think you know not just because I brought it up earlier, but there's there's a lot of this movie that this is very. This feels like Back to the Future 2. Like, this feels too Back to the Future, what Back to the Future 2 was. And and I'll even say that I think that, you know, uh, Into the Spider-Verse maybe works a bit more narratively than this one does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one is such a, a explosive, expressive, artistic well, it's just experience. It's so exciting. Yeah. I know. I, I agree with yeah. you completely. I... I think maybe the first one is still maybe a better movie, but I also don't know because this one is just swinging for the fences so hard. And for the most part connecting, it's almost hard, hard to compare them. Like I can, I can absolutely see an argument for either one, but um, yeah. Well, certainly the first one is a, a cleaner, presentation yeah but i think that this one is so exciting because it's very few times that i go to a movie where i really haven't seen anything like it before and this is what i felt even having seen into the Mm spider-verse i thought this movie was like we're in a this is opening up doors i'm watching like the birth of something new Oh, absolutely. And and just like I said, uh, I, I said this when the first one came out, I think, and I've said this on the podcast before, I think it's going to, you know, we're just starting to sort of see the influence of the first movie on animation. Uh, I think it's going to be like maybe a decade before animation catches up to what is happening here. I mean, yeah, it really, it really feels like Lord and Miller and and the producers and directors just went to a team of animators and said, whatever you've wanted to do your whole life, here's the money to do it. If you can dream it, let's make it happen in this movie. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I'm giving the movie an A. I'm giving Um, it an A. Again, my only critique is is the audio is a little muddy sometimes, but that's, that's, uh, you know, really all i can say uh, i'm giving this an a plus i mean i think it's a, a watershed moment in animation i think it's it is it's just kind of incomparable i loved it a plus all right so before we get into our final review for dragon slayer i did think up a game i wanted to play with you okay this is sort of a trivia there's 16 possible points. Okay. All right. And I was thinking back of on animated films with celebrity voices. Okay. Um, 
And I thought up eight celebrities, and I want you to tell me the name of the movie and the name of the character. Okay. So two two possible points per celebrity. All right. Okay. So the first actor that I have, Albert Brooks. Oh, uh, Albert Brooks. Oh, I can't think of the name. Um, but he's Nemo's dad from Finding Nemo. Uh, oh, uh, gosh. Um, Marlon. Marlon? Yes. Okay. All right. Two points in that one. Okay. Next actor, Joey Lawrence. Joey Lawrence? From Blossom. Whoa! And he's in an animated feature. He did a a voice for an animated feature. This one I have no idea. Pretty big movie. You've definitely seen it. I'm just going to guess. Was he (laughs) one of the princes from Frozen? Uh, I'll say the, the blonde one. No. <laughs> uh, he voiced Oliver from Oliver and Company. Oh, fuck. Okay, that one's old school. All right, all right. I wasn't thinking that all. Pre-woe. Yeah. Pre-blossom. Yeah. All right. Okay. Third actor, Mel Gibson. Oh, he was John Smith from Pocahontas. Yes, he was. <laughs> Insult to injury. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <Woo. laughs> uh, that's that's a sweaty choice now in 2023. It was then, mm-hmm. well, but it really is now. Um. Okay. Meg Ryan. Oh, uh, was she... She was... Um... Wasn't she Anastasia and Anastasia? Correct. Yes. I should have made this harder. <laughs> I watch a lot of cartoons, man. Yeah, a lot of these are the years we were watching a lot of animated well, films. But when I was watching a lot of these movies, I didn't... I wasn't attached to these celebrities, you know? Like, I didn't really know Mel Gibson when I saw Pocahontas. or You know what I mean? You didn't? Uh, I mean, I knew him. I don't know. I guess I did. I knew who he was, but... Yeah, I think I saw the first uh, Lethal Weapon and um, Forever Young before I had seen Pocahontas. I I guess what I mean when I say that is I, I I didn't have the same attachment to these celebrities as probably our parents did. Right. Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, Jesse Eisenberg. Um, hmm. Who is Jesse Eisenberg? I feel like it's got to be somebody nerdy. Um, kind of a newer one. Newer-ish. I mean, it would have to be. Yeah. This one, I don't know. You, you got me on this. I'm going to say he was a fucking vulture in one of the Ice Age movies. <laughs> He was a bird. Oh, Rio! Um, yes. Wait, wasn't that Michael Cera? Was... No, that was Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, fuck. He was blue 
in Rio. Ah, okay. I award you no points. No, you shouldn't. Okay. In his final role. Oh, uh, Orson Welles as Unicron in the 1985 Transformers movie. No, I would know better. <laughs> um, well, that was his final kind, role. Kind of along the same lines, Jimmy Stewart. Oh. Interesting. His final role? Huh. He lived a little, a few more years after this point, but he, um, that was the last acting role. He has such a specific voice, too, that I feel like I should know this. Um, oh, fuck, I have no idea. Um, you want to throw out a guess? Yeah, I'm going to say, uh, um, uh, if Orson Welles was the voice of Unicron in the 80s Transformers movie, I'm going to say that, um, uh, Jimmy Stewart was the fucking Cobra guy in the 80s G.I. Joe movie that came out the same year. No, <laughs> no. Uh, Jimmy Stewart did the voice of Wiley in American Tale, oh, Rifle Goes Wild. Wiley Burp. I knew this. Damn it. Yep. Damn it, I did know that one. Okay. This one you better know. Zendaya. Zendaya is Michi. Um, I can't <laughs> think of the fucking movie though. Um uh, uh Little was it Little Feet or something like that? Little Little Foot Bigfoots. Yetis. Zendaya is Michi! She is. I'll give it to you. It's Smallfoot. It's the name Small of the movie. Foot. That's right. Littlefoot was the uh, brontosaurus from Land Before Time. <laughs> yes. Okay. Adele Dazim. <laughs> uh, do- <laughs> well, she did Frozen, right? She was Elsa? Yes. Adina Menzel. Yeah, Adi- <laughs> <laughs> it was Elsa. In Frozen. Yeah, the last two are kind of givies. Um, so you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten out of sixteen possible points. Alright. I feel like that's respectable. Yeah, there's some of them you got that I didn't think you would get. There well, and there I thought there's some of those that I thought I'd throw you off with Anastasia, but Think well, of. and there was um, also in that movie was uh, Christopher Lloyd as Rasputin. It was actually a pretty, pretty solid cast. And and who was the the was it Christian Bale? Was he the boy? No, Christian Bale was in, in Anastasia. Christian Bale was in the movie The New World, which was no, no, no. based on the story no, 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 no. of Pocahontas. No, Christian Bale was he was like the young. The young colonizer from he he was like John Smith's teenage friend. I promise you, from the nineties. Yeah, yeah, because he was film? he was like um he was like oh you're he right. was like maybe like he was still in his teens or maybe like his like yeah yeah he would have been really young yeah yeah that that is wild given that he was later in the new the new world <laughs> <laughs> which was basically. Terrence Malick's Pocahontas <laughs> and Pocahontas 2 kind of as one movie. Um, okay. Oh, that was fun. 
Let's talk now about the homework that you assigned us, and that is Dragon Slayer from 1981. Uh, go ahead and describe what that movie is. Um, yeah, so there, uh, there's this kingdom uh, that for many, many years has has been sort of coexisting with this violent dragon every year they have a lottery to determine uh what young um virginal woman from the kingdom will be sacrificed uh to to appease the dragon but lately the dragon has become more and more um violent and and outreaching of its territory and so a select group of uh, travelers of adventurers go and seek out uh, the help of a wizard played by Ralph Richardson and his apprentice the, who the story is really about uh, played by Peter McNichol who through the course of events ends up sort of taking the sorcerer's mantle and uh, having to go and slay this dragon for this kingdom yeah, so you kind of get a a mix of elements from The Hobbit, mm -hmm. uh, as well as elements from Star Wars, you know, sort of the adventure plot that, you know, the young guy who has to save the, you know, any kind of Arthurian sort of yeah, legend uh, like that. that sort of Peter McNichols, right. very Luke Skywalker. There's, there's also some other sort of medieval folklore sprinkled in here. There's also like... Uh, gosh, what's her name? The French soldier woman. Well, you're you're speaking specifically of the character Valerian, played by C Caitlin Clark, yes. who who enters the group uh as a boy, mm -hmm. but is later discovered to be a woman. Yeah. Who? And okay, but now it's bothering me. Who? What's the woman? The French woman, the medieval French soldier, Joan of Arc. Okay. Uh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> that was just bothering me at that point. Okay. But yeah, there's there's this uh sort of a uh Merlin art like you said Arthurian legend. Yeah, there there's a lot of kind of mixed with, every fantasy you've mixed with the Hobbit kind of yeah, in a post Star Wars mm -hmm. world. Because again, there were a lot of these movies that were made right after Star Wars that were trying to capitalize on the success of that type of fantasy literature or pulp literature, whether it be uh, direct ripoffs, you know, like Disney's Black Hole mm -hmm. or something that's kind of a riff on it or a, a comedic take on it, like, like uh, Ice Pirates. Star Wars in and of itself was a pastiche of many other things that came before it, but that movie was so successful mm -hmm. that they, it really sort of recalibrated, uh, you know, blockbuster filmmaking in the way that we see it now, mm -hmm. um, for better or worse. But, you know, that particular period of time, like between 78 through 85, there were a bunch of these kind of like mini Star Warses. Yeah. And this one, even Phil Tippett does, uh, who who works with ILM, is one of the lead animators in this in this movie and and special effects person. You also have a, a another um, Star Wars crossover. Um, Ian McDermott, uh, 
who ends up who plays the emperor in Star Wars, he plays a, a right. kind of a cameo role as a, a sort of zealot priest in this. Yeah, and you know, I think it, this movie does a pretty solid job at capturing Arthurian style uh, high fantasy mm-hmm. and doing it at the level that it was able to do in 1981. Like it holds up pretty well on a, on a special effects level, especially a lot of the practicals and the puppetry. Yeah. Um, Vermithex. So, some... so the, the reason I was interested right. in this movie is, is kind of every fantasy person who is big in Hollywood now talks about how like massively influential this movie was to them. Um, you know, it was like it, get one of Guillermo del Toro's favorite movies, um, George R. R. Martin, which I think is very interesting in that one of the main characters in this is named Valerian, and one of the main characters is named Tyrion, and and both of those are names that pop up a lot in Game of Thrones. Um, and yeah, I, I can see how seeing a, you know, a dragon like this for the first time in the eighties, when you're of that age could blow your mind wide open. Right. Well, the director, Matthew Robbins, you mentioned Guillermo del Toro. Um, he did go on to make the movie bingo, (laughs) the dog movie. (laughs) Um, but he's had a very successful writing career, including writing the screenplays for Crimson Peak and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Oh, fuck. And um, Mimic. Among, and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which Guillermo del Toro produced, the, the remake of that. Uh, Batteries Not Included. And so The Legend of Billy Jean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's... Um, yeah, he's still a, a a pretty busy guy in the industry. Mm. Basically, anybody, especially I would think nowadays, who are really interested in in high fantasy mm-hmm. and maybe trying to sort of capture that late seventies, early eighties D and D airbrushed on the side of a van, heavy metal cover nostalgia. This would be a movie that would be like a direct reference like i i yeah do you know what death saves is yeah yeah that streetwear company mm-hmm. that um uh a joe mangan manganello yeah it, him and his friends you know they have that that they have that D uh show that they did a, or a live stream or whatever it was and where he brings his Hollywood friends down in his basement to play D&D. And then from that, he built this streetwear company called Death Saves, which combines all of those aesthetics of like late 70s, early 80s, heavy metal and Stephen King and and uh, high fantasy and horror and all of yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Like you know that Stranger Things verse. Yeah, that, kind of stuff. I was gonna say the the vibe of the kids from Stranger Things and their like D and D group, but to go on and kind of like nostalgia commercialize it. Yeah, and I would think that this would be some. This would be like something you'd put in your, you know, your uh, inspirations pinboard. 
when you're looking for imagery or you're looking for something like that. Yeah, well, and I, I um, get that because, like, as far as, again, I think we've kind of talked about this before on the podcast, but, you know, high genre of any genre, I feel, tends to, especially at this time period, be written off. And uh, Star Wars was, you know, kind of one of the things to start to change that. Oh, okay. Maybe this isn't just for nerds, even though at the time Star Wars was kind of just for nerds. Um, but every, well, I mean, it was still massively popular. It was just that there was it. It grew a cult audience within that, or out, you know, outside of it. What, however, yeah, you want to look it, at it, it. Like there was, it started to. There make was an that... in-group outgroup with Star Trek and Star Wars. Things well, like and, that. you know, I, I mean, even we kind of experienced this, you know, I remember when I was younger, uh, like, you know, being a little embarrassed by some of the cartoons and comic books I would read and stuff. And then, but now it's like, that is the culture. Right. And so I, I do think it's interesting that high fantasy and high sci-fi, it tends to get written off pretty especially in this time period but something like this which actually has uh you know a pretty big budget and some pretty special effects uh pretty beefy special effects behind it uh you know phil tippett would go on to help create the dinosaurs from jurassic park and 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 everything ilm yeah, yeah. and and this movie uh was uh done by ilm and i guess it was up for an oscar but lost to raiders of the lost ark so it lost to also ilm uh which is just kind of insane yeah well yeah i mean that was really what i think the movies from this time period outside of lucas spielberg Mm -hmm. who were able to elevate it to something that caught the entire zeitgeist you know a lot of the copycats didn't really that didn't happen for them yeah in the same way and you know we could we could probably guess why i mean a lot of these no big stars here not that star wars had any huge stars when it first came out they all became big stars well and but but also like you know it's a little more rote um it's it's a little more relying on convention where at least at least star wars say what you will about george lucas i mean he definitely was a visionary as far as like the world building and and just the making it feel very real and i think the case with dragon slayer and and especially some more of this sort of fantasy stuff kind of rests its laurels on what Gary Gygax and Dungeons and Dragons created so that they didn't really have to worry about that stuff as much. You know, they could kind of just be like, well, it's a fantasy picture. It's got a, you know, this big dragon. It's got, you know, they weren't as concerned yeah. with the the filling out of the world. There's zero irony in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, everything is... It very much is what it is, and it's not about much. Um, whereas I think you can say about Star Wars, uh, even the first Star Wars, which is not the best written of the three, but 
there are moments when you capture, you know, the, on the downtime of these characters when there's better conversations between the characters. There's more naturalism. Well, you to some of the scene work. It's it's a big and enough movie that you get moments like that where this is yeah there's moments of levity Mm -hmm. and and things like that this movie is a little stoic Mm -hmm. um a lot of the acting is pretty stilted especially by the lead uh peter mcnichol who most people probably would think of as being a big character actor later in uh uh, he ghostbusters 2 he was uh, janosh and uh, he would later also be one in, of the main characters. Ally McBeal. Uh, Ally Mc, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it, it, a comedic talent, but you wouldn't know it from seeing this movie. Well, yeah, but I mean, this was... He's just blonde guy with curls. Exactly. It's it's <laughs> very... Again, it's just very sort of rote. He, he's pulp. the archetypal, you know, he's he's yeah. the wizard's apprentice turned hero. Um, and and yeah. they really don't do much beyond that. There's not. It's not as playful with the genre as Lucas and Spielberg could get. Yeah, and I think that's why those guys were so good at what they did, mm-hmm. and why there was. It took a good while for the rest of Hollywood to catch up and make stuff in that vein. You know, whether it be whether it be James Cameron, Zemeckis. Yeah. And 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 other people who sort of worked on Joe Johnston and others who came out out of their school, uh, I think that you know this isn't too far away from like a Corman B movie. It just has an A budget. Well, yes, it has an A budget, and and you can see where the budget went. I mean, it was very much like. We're going to yeah. put all of this into making this very impressive <clears throat> special effect. And, and you know, the the time and attention and love was given to Vermithax the dragon. Um, it, it, yeah. It, as well as the, some of the other creatures and stuff we see along the way. They're not, they're few and far between, but... You know, in general, I'd say like the the camera work is good. Sure, and the, the cinematography is good. Well, and the, and the prop um, work, the set dressing, like yeah, yeah, totally. Like, but it, but it is it's a, a big, handsome movie. But it it's a it's yeah. it's a sort of big excuse for spectacle, right? And it it doesn't really graduate past that B movie quality, unfortunately. Um, like a lot of the movies that inspired it and were inspired by it. You know what, though? Um, I'm, I'm going to say it. I like a good B movie with an A movie budget. I Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm all about it. I, I think that there's, even within that, there's, you know, there's levels. This one is a little boring sometimes. Yeah, um, it takes a while to get to when, the dragon. It, and... and the second half is much better than the first half. I'll say that. Mm. Um, kind of kept waiting for these characters to come to life and and be a bit more than what their description is on the page. Well, the the and the, it, the most interesting character is uh, Ralph Richardson. Is Valerian? The, uh, oh, what? Well, well, okay, yes. The most interesting real character is Valerian because Ralph Richardson. I feel like. Is doing a lot of great work to sort of ground this wizard and spoilers, he dies in the first 
like 10 minutes in kind of a stupid way. And right. He's sort of Obi-Waning. Yeah. The first half of the movie. But even Obi-Wan lasts throughout the movie. This is very like kind of abrupt. And it's unfortunate because I, I, I feel like as a character actor, he's kind of having the most fun and well a lot a lot of these older british types they've you know the royal shakespeare yeah. academy in them they know exactly how to do these movies they know why they got cast they know why they're there they're rank professionals they can you can say you're old wizard man or whatever and they're gonna sell it to you like they're king henry absolutely <laughs> and and it and they can make what is absolutely not there on the page come to life because these guys are just so fucking good. All, you know, all of these people who, who kind of came from the school mm-hmm. of Lawrence Olivier. Or, oh my God. We're, we are so you. lucky that we got Ian McKellen as both fucking Magneto and Gandalf. <laughs> and that, the and right. that for the most part, the scripts gave him stuff to chew on. Um, but, yeah, but I I feel like that's the case here. Is is his performance is by far the most interesting because of sort of the time of storytelling. They write him off as a character very quickly, and then we're sort of just left with the the tropes. Yeah, it, it just a, a save the princess story, mm. and with with some variation on that. Valerian would be interesting, you know, this idea of this this girl sort of infiltrating because she wants to prove herself, blah, blah, blah. There's motivation there, again, wrote, but it's at least something. Well, it, it's but a story that her works. dialogue in the film is, I am girl, but I can do the same as boy. <laughs> it, <laughs> absolutely. But even that as a storytelling mechanism is more interesting than, uh, you know, I'm blonde boy must become hero. Right. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I think Valerian is, uh, even though it's an archetype, it's, a, it's just a more interesting archetype. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, the reason why anyone wants, would watch this today um, is for the special effects, or if you just really like you know, fantasy for the sake thereof. Sure, and and um, I, well, I mean, as far as the fantasy goes, um, it's pretty thin. It's pretty, you know, like they don't even tell us what kingdom we're in. We just know it's no. sort of this vaguely, you know, vaguely European uh, idea of medieval fantasy. But the budget and the special effects and and all of the care in that regard makes it work a little bit more yeah yeah i mean i had fun with it um it is a sort of time capsule piece but there are things about it that are, that are interesting okay so the next episode for the streaming homework i'm gonna have us watch the adventures of priscilla queen of the desert from 1994 celebration of pride month um, this is a a classic film in LBGT history that I have not seen until now. But uh, we're going to we're going to watch that one and talk about it. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the movies that we 
reviewed or talked about on this episode, you can reach out to us at our email at uh, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, we're on TikTok. And uh, we're searchable under Letterbox under at MacGuffinPod. If you would like to read the reviews that I do weekly for the Idaho State Journal, you can look up my reviews by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment page, and that'll pull up the archive. You can follow me individually on Twitter at VCCassidy on uh, both Twitter and Instagram. Um, and... Uh, be sure to read the other articles and reviews from the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. Uh, and be sure to rate us uh, with a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts, whatever app you use to listen to us on. Uh, give us a high rating, and uh, it'll bump us up in their algorithm for recommended. Also, word of mouth. Word of mouth is good. If you if yes. you listen, share the episodes. If you follow us on social, or if you have friends who are into movies or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, check out this one my friends do, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think organic growth is probably the most, the most likely that something sort of sticks or isn't just like a weird a flare up in an algorithm or something like that absolutely talk to your friends tell them we're awesome uh you can follow me on instagram and twitter at keith foster kid uh also um if you want to see me live i perform uh at the show improv versus stand-up at mockingbird improv here in san diego um, you can follow both Mockingbird Improv and Improvise's stand-up on Instagram. And that is the episode. I love chai tea. Bye.